Welcome back to the Comics to Lewis podcast, where we read widely and we dig deep to study the world of graphic novels and comics and the way that this lively medium changes and reflects culture. My name is Paul. I'm a literacy researcher and an English teacher here to talk today about Hot Comb, a book out from Ebony Flowers, um, from Drawn and Quarterly, um, and then to talk about some of the other graphic novels and comics that we look ahead to talking about. So to start us off, five minutes about what this podcast is, um, because we're returning from a really long break. Um, this podcast began as a project of mine. I'm a um, literacy researcher and an English teacher. Um, I'm a, uh, you know, a person who, as an immigrant kid, grew up on comic books and really came to understand the world in ways that were both accurate and very skewed through comics and graphic novels, and really through a wide range of what's out there in the comics medium, from comic strips and um, newspaper comics to um, superhero comics and graphic novels, things like um, Mouse and um, eventually American Born Chinese spoke to my understanding of the world as I tried to make sense of the interaction of language and um, and society, uh, the ways that words mapped onto the world, uh, and the ways that as an artist you could create and change the world that you lived in. Um, and so comics have been always, to me, one medium among, of course, all the, the panoply of media and the creation of who we are as cultural beings. And I've been fascinated uh, my entire life, and particularly lately as I completed graduate studies um, in literacy education and language and culture, fascinated by the ways that comics reflect and shape who we are. So um, this podcast is really an effort, an opportunity, an excuse <laughs> for me to continue to read comics thoughtfully, to continue to read comics in engagement with um, theory, with creators themselves, with other critics, uh, with scholars and academics who really have influenced the way that I read comics and the way that I distill from those readings a critical sensibility about culture and society. So um, here we are. That's what this podcast is about. If I've bored you already, then you know what you're up for. <laughs> One thing that will not bore you, though, is the works that we talk about. And today, I'm excited because Ebony Flowers' Hot Comb is one of my favorite comics of the year. Um, it came out in the summer, and I'm a little late to reviewing it. Um, but it has um, so much of what I love about comics and graphic novels and does so much that is uh, refreshingly new and different and also steeped in, I think, um, deep traditions of what comics arts can do. So um, in a moment, we'll talk about um, Hot Comb, and then uh, I'll, I'll dig into a little bit of the questions, and I think that's something I try to do here on this podcast, is to invite you to a dialogue um, built around my, my thoughts, my reactions, my reflections, and my questions about a text. Um, and so with that, I really want to invite your participation and your, um, your feedback. Uh, I, I want to invite dialogue. I want to provoke and inspire and encourage us to think deeply about what we read together. Uh, and so that's, uh, that'll you know, lead into the set of questions that we have about Hot Comb. Um, and after that, I will share some of the comics that I've been uh, looking at lately or anticipating reading and would love your feedback about those as well. Um, are you reading those? Uh, what do they say to you? Uh, 
as listeners may know, I love to engage with people who are reading the same things and to hear their responses, weave them into the ways that I talk about these books on this podcast. Um, there are times often when uh, I'm not alone on this microphone and we I get to talk with other critics and comics um, reviewers and scholars, but uh, sometimes it is me. <laughs> Today, that's the case, just me on a mic. And so um, I'll talk about some of the books coming up that I would love to interact with you about, whether it's me on a mic solo or somebody else um, at the seat with me. Um, okay, so just a reminder that if you do want to engage with the podcast, uh, please do subscribe. And um, you know your rating and review and sharing on social media always helps. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Tuply, T-W-O-P-L-A-I. You can um, find us on the Facebook page for Comic Syllabus, which is in the show notes. And um, we live and find our home at multiversitycomics.com, which is a great site just for, you know, a wide-ranging comics, um, reviews, interviews, news, analysis, commentary, all kinds of great stuff. Um, so check out multiversitycomics.com. Check out the whole network of podcasts we have from goofy dudes talking about DC comics to some uh, really <laughs> in-depth analysis of uh you know marvel and star wars and uh, manga and all kinds of comics goodness um to our our friends at uh, robots from tomorrow where they cover dang near everything <laughs> so um all right so after the after the jump after the break we'll get into hot comb here we go Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow on iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. We're talking today about Ebony Flowers' Hot Comb from Drawn and Quarterly. Dr. Flowers is a, uh, an ethnographer uh, and works in the field of education, which is something that, you know, I... I work in as well, actually, where I first encountered her name at academic conferences, doing presentations. Never had the pleasure of meeting her, but um, she's from the Baltimore, Maryland area, which is where Hotcomb kind of emerges from because it's um, kind of an autobiographical memoirish series of vignettes that present this arc of um, flowers growing up as a girl in Baltimore area, as a black girl in a, in a uh, black community. And the various vignettes all touch on different ways that she and her family and her friends encounter the weighted and really meaningful, um, uh, I guess, realities of of hair um, and hair hair's significance in the black community, hair's significance for black women, uh, maybe in particular, and um, and the stories that she tells are funny. Um, uh, engaging, rich. Uh, they, they, I think they have this complexity about uh, what they speak to about our sense of self um, and our bodies, uh, you know, others as gays and our, our need to, 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 to live up into, I guess, what the world 
tells us uh, what we must become, our desire to express ourselves, um, the, uh, the, the ways that we identify with celebrity figures and with media, um, and all of that becomes something that we carry into ourselves, into our bodies, and, um, and, in, and sometimes in ways that are, uh, you know, <laughs> incredibly relatable, sometimes in ways that are surprising, sometimes in ways that are, are tragic um, and moving, and sometimes in ways that are uproariously funny. And so there's just so much personality in Hot Comb that um, it's really one of my favorite books of the year. Um, and I think what it does is, you know, sort of uh, um, braiding throughout this is the visual imagery and the sort of story moments of reconciliation and disruption with the place of hair or the role of hair as it becomes, you know, symbolic of different kinds of complicated relationships, um, relationships of race, of gender, of class, and so on. And so it's just really interesting as a, as a sort of, you know, narrative exposition of this, this experience that is, um, you know, that is wonderfully rich and that actually in moments like this when um, not my president is, um, you know, taking shots at Representative Elijah Cummings and his district, um, of course, Baltimore area district, as a rat-infested hellhole, you know, the, the, the kinds of um, arch stereotyping of, you know, of certain black communities that always reminds me of Nikki Giovanni's poem, Nikki Rosa, um, where she describes her growing up in Woodlawn in Chicago and talks about how she hopes that no white person ever has cause to write about me because they never understand that black love is black wealth and they'll probably write about my hard childhood and never, as I go, never um, realize or never understand that all the while I was quite happy. Um, there's this erasure that happens in when we render and portray and talk about communities that... Um, we don't come from and that we um, by dint of our biases and our stereotypes we don't know the depths of and i think dr flowers's work in this book does so much to represent um, in all of the brilliance of the graphic novel form the depths of her experience growing up and of her friends and community her sister her her mother um the depths of the challenges, but also the depths of, I think, the resilience and the love and the beauty in it as well. Um, Hot Comb uh, begins with a 45-page vignette that is kind of the first story. It's entitled Hot Comb. Uh, there's other stories that um, are, are have different titles, and each of them is interesting, and each of them is distinct. And uh, each of the stories, in fact, is kind of um, uh, bracketed interrupted with commercial interruptions there's these one page advertisements and it's a variety of advertisements for hair products um, targeted toward black audiences and for me as a reader kind of cognizant of who i am as a chinese american um, who did not see these kinds of advertisements or did not notice them when i was growing up as a kid because i was not sort of in the commercially targeted spaces you know it was not in a magazine that i picked up and read or a television show that i remember seeing and um or or maybe it was and i could tell that it wasn't for me or i didn't understand and so there's a lot in this book um, that on a surface level for instance looking at an advertisement that is really meant to entice um, black um, consumers to certain products that 
I, I don't that I know are outside of my experience. It's just clearly far outside of my experience. Talking about um, well, I'm looking at one right now that says um, uh, kinks and coils forever. Uh, my hair uh, never looked the way that I wanted it to. It never looked like the sort of Hollywood, you know, um, usually white male <laughs> movie stars that I thought were, uh, you know, the ideal of masculine beauty that I wanted to live live into, live up to. My hair never does match that ideal. And even the things that I do to it on a daily basis that are regular contortions of, you know, who I am and what sort of my body gives me in order to make it look more, you know, my head, my shape look more like something um, is already itself really fraught. And that's something I can connect with. What I I know I cannot connect with is the particular experience of African-American women and the historical um, management, policing, um, uh, sort of regulation of hair, Uh, not in the same way, not in the same degree. Um, So, you know, as I read, I'm cognizant of ways that I can relate where, you know, empathetically I can find links between um, my position as a, a, a you know a Chinese immigrant um, and ways that I, I, I you know this experience is utterly different from from my own and um, and how important it is for me as a reader important makes it sound like homework no really actually how how much I love and how much I've gained from um, reading this kind of work reading particularly black arts and and honestly from you know, from black women, especially as a non-black person of color in the United States, um, work like this, which really asks the question always of, is this for you? If you presume that you can know my inner subjectivity, what kind of appropriating anthropologist, (laughs) you know, with all of its troubled history of exploitation, do you think you are? But if you um, cast me entirely as an other you know, where is your human capacity for compassion and understanding and empathy? And I think that black literate work has been and always continues to be for me, really the lifeblood of American literature. I'm talking about this book in the wake of a week where we lost and tried our damnedest and, and, you know, sort of utterly failed to do justice to the memory of Toni Morrison, um, who was, um, you know, one of the most significant influences and uh, and authors for me growing up as a you know literature reader and English major, and so uh, I always think of Morrison's *Playing in the Dark*, where um, she really brought to the fore the notion that you can't really talk about American letters and American literature without you, you know with some vain attempt at being race neutral or upholding some classics, quote unquote, that um, are not race works because there is the ever-present um you know shot through post-columbus american history the ever-present um recognition of difference upon which ideologies of who americans are um, are built and um always the uh, presence of enslaved peoples always the presence of the racialized other in the um, consciousness of America in its ideals, in its dreams, in its, um, you know, presumptions, um, in its destiny, <laughs> in its manifest destiny, right? And so, so 
to to not just read quote unquote racial books as racial, um, to really um, know that um, you know we read America um, utterly, I think, uh, inseparable from the questions of the color lines that um, are shot through its histories, and so for me, I think there's been this significant role for black arts for me as an Asian American that um, I could not sort of know who I am as, without black artists, black writers, black thinkers, um, black theorists, and black theologians, and so on. Yet I also don't know who I am through those, um, not being a, a, a black person. And I think that's been an important position for me to maintain um, and to respect, um, to approach with humility and gratitude, because I know that it is um, for 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 me as uh, an Asian American, um, a, a, I think a, a consciousness, a kind of you know mixed double consciousness, as W. B. Du Bois would talk about, that um, that is all the complexity that has been the source of my freedom. Okay, <laughs> enough about that and my positionality as a reader. Back to this first story, Hot Comb. Um, I think the story exemplifies, you know, what these tales do and really demonstrate their power. Um, so in Hot Comb, uh, young Ebony moves to an all-black neighborhood with her family because she and her sisters were acting too white, as she narrates it. Um, in the first page, actually, before you get into the, the explanation of them moving into this all-black neighborhood. You actually see um, she and her mother standing at the front steps of, you know, a storefront. Not entirely sure what it is, um, but she says, I remember the first time I got a relaxer. By the way, a note to what I was talking about before, didn't know what a relaxer was from experience or from exposure. But um, she goes on, my mother and I waited to get buzzed inside. And then the bottom two panels, interaction between mother and daughter. I really don't want you doing this says mother, of course. Daughter says, but mom. And then mother holds up a finger and says, don't say but like that to me. You're too young to be wanting a perm. And in the very first page, what becomes, well, first page of narrative, what becomes really apparent is the kinds of questions that are packaged into these, um, into all these accounts about hair, which are questions about um, you know, a, a woman coming into herself, a young woman coming into herself and being able to choose for herself who she is and how complicated that is because her mother is clearly throughout the book loving, concerned, you know, present, um, uh, uh, <laughs> sometimes, you know, d demanding and strict, sometimes, you know, lovingly punitive. But, I, you know, always I think you can see within her mother the the... I think her 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 eagerness to 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 really love and parent her child and to 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 guide her and yet to to struggle with that that you know need to give her that freedom uh I, I think that there's you know all of these moments of what um appear like it appears on this first page of a really stern uh and sort of finger in the air kind of mother motherhood that at the same time you know is utterly you know suffuse with concern and compassion and care for her daughter that her daughter is um can be herself 
um, can be who they are as a as a as a community, um, can be you know who she is in her body, and yet recognizing the the ways that um, you know we all give in and we all kind of succumb to the pressures of culture. Um, later on, she talks about wanting her hair straightened and flat and you know with bangs like Tatiana Ali, um, who played uh, Ashley Banks uh, on. Uh, uh, shoot, <laughs> Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Is I remember that well, and I remember that look well. And you know, again, looking at it from an outsider, but knowing that there are these these expectations of all of us in, in media portrayals, and then of course knowing that there are layers of of particular um, meaning, resonance, um, and maybe pain and hardship for Black women around their hair. That. Um, all in this moment, as they're standing in front of the salon, it, preparing to get her first relaxer, makes it so that as a mother and daughter standing in front of this, this is the gateway to something momentous. This gateway to this process of finding and and being and owning yourself, um, and how fraught that is. <laughs> and so, the, you know, I, I feel like there is um, again in this beguiling simplicity. Um, flowers draws with um, I'm not sure if it's a it's a combination of brush and, and nib but this line thickness there's not a lot of you know there's not grayscales or washes here it's it's straight black and white um, ink work and but there's this um, I think there's this richness and this thickness to that her that nib and brush style that's really important for the aesthetic of this book um, panels are filled with lines that whether it's clothing or bricks or trees or decor um, or very often hair there's this feeling then that like you know the varieties of black hair that show up in this book um, you know curly or kinky um, big or um, managed you know like um, uh, combed out or sort of in rolls there's always this sense that hair is um, full and lush and also that many parts of her world are the same uh, in in a kind of fullness and a kind of lushness, and all done through that presence of the the line. Um, some places where it does look like there's some brushwork, but it's very you know it's very kind of um, uh, black and white. Um, and so there's a way that ink fills the page, that's in a way that speaks to um, a kind of presence. In contrast to a few pages in a particular story about her sister later on. Um, that is about these white girls on a swim team and how they sort of taunt and tease her for her hair. And those pages are, have a particular kind of blankness to them that I think is, you know, there's so much visual rendition of darkness and, um, and you know, f fullness being um, messy or a problem. And I think this, this is an art style that um, speaks against that, um, in so many ways that um, well, I think again of Toni Morrison and of how you know the presence of, of color and, the, and and sort of um, you know the the the, uh, the juice of berries the the um, uh, the vibrancy of um, of decorativeness um, all speak to a presence that um, you know it, it's actually in the the sort of absence or the sort of silence of whiteness that you feel uneasy, um, the, the barrenness 
versus a kind of um, richness and lushness that I really feel like is there in the aesthetics of this book. Um, so <laughs> here we are still on the first page. Um, but, I, I, you know, throughout, I think, the book, you know, um, there's that kind of contemplation going on. And, and it seems to really happen, again, through the eyes of a young girl. And I think that's part of the beauty of this book. Um, you know, she goes on to narrate how uh, they moved to, to this um, Baltimore area, black neighborhood, because, as her mother says, she and her sister are acting too white. Um, she hangs out with this white friend as a little girl, Ellie Mae, um, in their previous neighborhood. And, you know, it's Ellie Mae's her best friend, and, the, you know, they're up to all kinds of hijinks and, and up to no good and, um, you know, um, uh, pooping in the, in the back of a, of a house, <laughs> stuff like that. Really funny little kid stuff. But Ellie Mae is, you know, is sort of punished by her grandfather and beating her for how she played. And, um, you know, she, uh, as Flowers writes, my, sometimes her granddad beat her for how she played. My father used the belt on me too, but I'd never have to pull my pants down though. And you can see her grandfather beating her, beating Ellie Mae, Ellie Mae with a belt and saying, you got glitter or glue all over my carpet. Um, and, you know, they're, they're having this kind of kid-like fun. But when uh, Ebony, young Ebony, tells her mother about um, the ways that Ellie Mae's father, uh, grandfather uh, beat her, it is cause for alarm, <laughs> understandably. And um, her mother starts thinking like, oh, this is uh, not... This is this is not good. We need to to get ourselves to a different place, and I, I think that there is a significance in, um, I guess, a, a subversion of the expectation about, you know, why why some people move away from particular neighborhoods and the feeling that there is something culturally very different about, say, uh, what seems to be like a working class white community where um, you just beat your kids with a belt, and that's not okay with me. Um, and, and we got to get somewhere where at least, um, if our, if our neighbors are part of the village raising our kids, that there's a sense of trust and community and, and, and understanding we're known. Uh, and so they move and, um, in the new neighborhood, Ebony encounters three girls, Kendra, Deidre, and Crystal, who are, you know, experiencing early onset puberty, who are classified in special ed, who taunt her, um, but eventually, you know, become her friends, like lifelong friends, right? And so they're pre preparing to do uh, perform for a talent show, as you do when you're a kid, and, and they're going to be TLC, you know, as listening to that and having flashbacks to my childhood and, and, you know, don't go chasing waterfalls and stuff. And as part of her performing for this talent show, she asks for her hair to be straightened. And the experience that she renders is, you know, three hours that seem really painful. Um, uh, it seems like a lot to do that until... It's compared to them performing in these uh, very reminiscent of the era outfits and singing, uh, you know, TLC. And her family, of course, her mom and her dad are there watching this talent show and absolutely furious. <laughs> and so the, the painful experience of hair is compared to the repercussions of seeing their performance. And she's punished in a way that leaves her as Flowers draws her a, just a crying, slobbery mess um crying in her bed in a way that um there's this, uh, a feeling in the drawing it's just it reminds me in 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 its kind of evocation of of extremes um that are a picture into you know the the soul and sentiment 
of Linda Berry and Linda Berry's ability to to use what would be what might appear um, maybe momentarily monstrous as this kind of uh, external externalization of of the feeling inside. Uh, boy, I felt like that as a kid a lot too. I felt almost monstrous in the way that my emotions came out, particularly in moments when there was a feeling that I screwed up, but that I had hit on a nerve of something bigger than just that that thing. You know, I'd done something that was meant somehow meant more than just the thing that I thought than just the infraction that I thought I had transgressed. I touched on a nerve with my my dad or my mom. And I think that that revealing first moment is, you know, a a a, a really telling moment and I think a you know, maybe a, a watermark moment for Ebony in terms of realizing the nerve that you touch on when you begin to mess with hair. And so then they return to the moment where she and her mother are in front of Dee's salon and um, about to get the re- her, her relaxer for the first time. And there's a group of women inside and there's, you know, black arts from the flea market on the wall. And she's questioning whether she wants that perm experience. And she's flipping through these black hair magazines and you know, it says, so true, so you, and, and, you know, looking at all these manipulations of hair that, um, that are advertised, and that leave her, her wanting that, and again, we see in, in, um, in the process of what they do to her hair, you know, this, these exaggerated feelings of pain, but also this quiet acceptance, you know, that all of this that you do to yourself, and that you (laughs) inflict upon yourself, um, is something that is just part of the lot of, of the experience, um, part of what it takes to look like Ashley Banks. <laughs> um, and towards the end of the story, she's fighting with her sister, her little sister, over the, the, the kind of oil. Again, in my ignorance here, forgive me if I misspeak, um, but the, the, the chemi oil or chemi oil that um, is, is uh, supposed to be continually applied to, to the hair. And it's, it becomes this fight that is kind of a struggle over um, access. When do you get to the age where you get to have that autonomy over your hair? Your mother intervenes and so on. And then, and then there's this heartbreaking, heartbreaking because it's so familiar, um, ending where her, um, she goes to school with her straightened hair, um, you know, with the curls at the end that just we can see is just so hard earned to get there. And, of course, her friends start to make fun of her for her perm. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's the echoes of their laughter that ends um, this 47, 45-page story. Um, there's so much there. Um, there's so much of the movement um, this way and that of, um, you know, of the stakes of your hair being this way or that. And I am really struck as I read this and as I read the kind of other stories about stories about the weird lady on the train stories about the experience when flowers is doing field work where sort of princess white kid plays with her hair um this that story I I alluded to earlier about her little sister Lena my little sister Lena it's entitled was in a swim class where these white girls are asking her questions about her hair until she gets to this point that's just so sort of darkly tragic that she's pulling out her hair in bunches right and, and, and in the series of short stories and their, and their tensions and their sort of gra- gradual evolution, um, this sequence of vignettes that feels very much like 
a f- the familiarity of a coming of age, but a, with the particular reconciliations that have to happen around hair. Um, and so um, I, I am left with a lot of questions, um, as I am with all things I read. Um, I'm, you know, maybe some, you know, three, three, three ways smart and 10 ways dumb. So <laughs> there's always some, um, some outstanding questions for me. Um, I, I mean, I, I think a little bit about the question I brought up earlier about who is this for and, and does that matter in art? Um, is this for, is this ultimately for, for Ebony Flowers? Um, or is it a story that's told um, for other black girls um, or other black women or, uh, you know, uh, others who identify with this part, the particularity of these histories and these struggles? Is it for um, children who live in a context that at least echoes, if not um, follows exactly these kinds of experiences? And in what ways is work like this for us? Um, again, back to Morrison, who would always call out the assumption of, you know, a quote-unquote neutral or universal that um, was actually, you know, a whiteness in disguise, whiteness disguising itself as the, as the dominant and hegemonic norm. Um, and, and I think, you know, a, a, a way to mitigate that and, and, to, and, to, and to speak back against that is the importance of not just representation, but really um, uh, uh, the authorial voice that creators have. Um, I think of reading recently about Franklin and, and uh, the, the, the Peanuts character and how in the wake of Dr. King's assassination, you know, black readers really lobbied for Schultz to include Franklin as a black character in the neighborhood, but that, you know, uh, Schultz was really um, hesitant at first because he didn't want to misrepresent what he was not himself and did not know, uh, ultimately acceded to the importance of that and included Franklin and then seemingly did very little with him <laughs> as a character. Franklin, you know, unlike Linus or Lucy or Charlie or, uh, you know, Snoopy, doesn't have the quirks and the uh, the flaws and, uh, you know, the sort of surprising um, wonders that um, the other children have when you are able to write them as full human beings because of your innate knowledge of that fact. <laughs> you know, Schultz seems tepid in, um, in exploring who Franklin is because I think he knows um, the stakes may be too high, higher than he's willing to, 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 um, to play with. And what that doesn't, obviously it doesn't speak to, um, you know, um, to what, not just to Schultz's failures, but really to the importance of Maury Turner and, you know, Jackie Orms and Aaron Magruder as voices that we have in comics. Um, and, you know, so, you know, one thing I think that becomes uh, a, a kind of question for me as I read is, is to, in what ways and to what extent is this for me? Um, I know that I'm enriched by it. I know I have a lot of fun with it. I know I learn a, f- a few things about human experience from it. Um, but in what ways and to what extent is this for me? Um, to be less narcissistic about my questions, I think also there's a lot in here that leads us, leaves us wondering about um, the extent to which um, I think 
repositioning yourself in relation to society's expectations is something that uh, we should put an onus on kids to do. Um, that is a question of a kid's own agency and decision making or the extent to which a community has to come around and offer a kind of alternative, sometimes to you know make you free, sometimes to save your life, um, sometimes to make you feel um, like uh, uh, you aren't under the, the gaze and um, sort of oppressive um, scrutiny, the, um, the, the kind of um, perpetual otheredness um, that society can put on you. Whose job is that? Um, and how can it ever be the job of a kid uh, you know, on whom we already put these crazy onuses of all of the sins of our collective, <laughs> you know, our collective uh, social dysfunction? right? Why is it the job of children to have to navigate these things? Um, and yet, if we navigate it for them, uh, how much are we taking away their ability to determine for themselves how they'll navigate this world with all of its um, cruelties and ridiculousness? Um, I, I, I think I, I see that question in Ebony's mom and in various um, places where Ebony herself stands at junctures and you can almost see through her eyes or see through the ways that she is, you know, um, toggling between different POVs about her friends um, who she, you know, of course comes to this as part of her, the coming of age here. She, she dearly loves and regards and respects and, um, and, you know, in a sisterly sort of way um, identifies with. Um, and, you know, even I think takes in things that made her initially hesitant as a kid and makes her own them for the, the power of their, you know, rebelliousness and the power of their um, assertion of, of, you know, their own, their, their personhood, their autonomy. Um, her friends are <laughs> really fun and also um, really sharp. And, you know, so, so, you know, I guess I, I see in, um, in Ebony and the way that she renders herself in these stories, um, in her mother, that question that I wrestle with my own version of as a parent, um, what do I, uh, what do I regulate <laughs> for my daughter, um, in order to save her, in order to spare her from certain indignities and, and crimes against her, um, and her personhood as a Chinese American girl. And what do I need to leave and allow the space to, um, to be burned herself by the world or to, to find some kind of, um, independence or selfhood in herself? Um, those are hard questions. And I think they're particular questions. Um, they're, they're sort of things that we all experience and they're also have these particular forms and manifestations, um, because of our specific place in society, um, to be a black woman, um, or to be, um, in, in my case, an Asian American man, um, playing out in very different ways and with different, um, different stakes as I was talking about. Um, and I think the last question for me is really about my reading of the art. Um, I, th I think there's something to, to, um, Ebony Flowers' style. Let's see how I put this. I think that the artistry in, in what she does as a comics artist um, can be overlooked uh, by people who are always um, staring at, like, you know, a Brian Hitch 
drawing or Ghibli or some, something very far afield like that. Um, it, there's something deeply subjective about it. There's something that, um, you know, it becomes easy to, I think, um, it, it becomes possible, I think it's possible to overlook how much, uh, how much detail there is um, because what she's rendering with care and what she's rendering with great detail are, you know, like if you stare at a Batman comic, um, you know, 10 out of 12 faces can look exactly the same. The dynamics live somewhere else. Um, yet in, I'm looking at a two-page spread of this book of Hot Comb, and there is um, just in the way that her a mother is looking at the daughter in the subtleties of eyebrows, lips, where her eyes are set, um, how she holds hands with her, um, so much intention and so much care in the art. Um, not to mention, you know, again, as I mentioned before, the trees around her, the garden, the, the sense of lush life that is there. Um, I, I'm curious about what people think about um, flowers as an artist, because I think that um, it's super legible, you know, like it's very readable. Um, there's something that um, allows you to um, enter into, I think, the, these characters in the way that it is cartooning as opposed to narrative, as opposed to prose, um, as opposed to poetry, for instance. Um, and I don't know if that accessibility, I don't know if cartooning, I guess what I'm trying to say is cartooning, for me, tends to allow a kind of entrance because, you know, cartoons, comic strips, comics, were always meant to let you enter the consciousnesses to some extent or feel comfortable within the skin of certain characters, you know, of, of Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes or the aforementioned Peanuts characters. You were supposed to um, kind of find them relatable in a way that that is uh, is tricky with other forms. Um, and is, But in doing this kind of a story in comics, is that the goal of this art? Um, or does the or does the art actually mean to um, to to show something distinct that um, some people can read themselves into and others shouldn't? Um, and you know what is that what is that as a responsibility of the reader and what is that as a responsibility of creator? Um, is that even something we can ever um, control, manage, or think about? <laughs> So yeah, those kind of thoughts went through my head as I was reading. Um, but ultimately, as I said, uh, utterly fascinating and very fun and um, really deeply moving book in many ways. And again, one of my favorite comics of the year. So encourage you all to, if you haven't, pick up Hot Comb by Ebony Flowers. All right, um, after a short break, we'll come back and we will talk about other comics that I've been reading and I would love with, to hear your thoughts about, um, but certainly would love to hear what you think about Hot Comb and um, interact with you about it um, and these questions I've laid out. Okay. Alright, five minutes on what I'm reading and what I'd love for you to read with me. And uh, next time on the comic syllabus, we're going to talk about King of King Court by Travis Dondo. 
Um, it is a book from also from Drawn and Quarterly. We're kind of on a Drawn and Quarterly roll this August. Um, they just had a bunch of titles that are coming out that um, I'm interested in. Um, so King of King Court is one, and Grass by Kim Suk, Gendry Kim. Um, those are the two Drawn and Quarterly books I'm looking forward to reviewing in the next episode of, of Comic Syllabus. Check them out um, and let us know what you think. Um, I have also been um, an eager follower and supporter of the NIB as the NIB has undergone a transformation from a corporate supported um, larger site to something that um, will have to make its work independent. Um, The NIB has been a a source of vibrant um, political and social commentary. um, And I think that um, its supporters have been treated to this sort of uh, every so often little booklet of comics that um, the most recent one was centered on the theme of scams. Um, really ironic in that it, the the book sort of is all about exposing some of the manipulations and tricks of, of our capitalist world. And um, the nib is um, in some senses um, uh, not, not free from those kinds of constraints and, and concerns in, in its existence too. So I uh, encourage you to, find that get that support that um another thing you can support is that i think um recently in kickstarter center for cartoon studies put out a book called this is what democracy looks like and i've been reading that um also got recently got my copy from fanographics of tonta by jaime hernandez another sort of collection of um pieces strewn about about that character from his love and rockets work and um coming out soon from secret acres two books that i'm interested in talking about perhaps in september one the backstage of a dishwashing window by karen katz who katz who is a fascinating artist and doing some very different kinds of comics um, i believe from israel um, i could be wrong about that um, and also um, glennis fox's um, persephone's garden by um, uh, from secret acres both coming out mid-September, I believe. Um, would love to hear if those are things that you're interested in reading with me and talking about. Um, I also want to keep on a regular tip of looking at young readers' comics. Um, Once Upon a Time, and you may have heard prior episode of this podcast, um, which wasn't posted on Multiversity, but was just a tribute and a, a remembrance of Derek Parker Royal, as I was previously involved with Comics Alternative, the podcast, the website, the sort of group of various um, <laughs> people Sorry, that wasn't meant to be a scoff at all, um, but of a loving appreciation of the various PhDs talking about comics there. And one of the things that I did was had the honor of working with Gwen Tarbox um, on the Young Readers podcast, and I'm really interested and care a lot about um, Young Readers comics, and, and I want to talk about them in a kind of segment. I'm, I'm not sure how it'll look yet, but developing either a segment or a set of episodes or whatever on comic syllabus about Young Readers comics. And so you know, I've been reading a bunch of stuff in that area. Um, everything, uh, you know, a lot of things ranging from Toon Books has had a few things that have come out recently. Um, Yvonne Brunetti made a comics easy as ABC book that um, my daughter and I spent a couple hours with and then were inspired to draw, draw, draw. Um, and uh, and then there's another book called The White Snake by Ben Nadler um, that is sort of a, a fairy tale mythology um, retold in comics. Um, I've been reading Queen of the Sea by Dylan McConus um, from Walker Books. And Hikatea from Lorena Alvarez from No Brow is a Nightlights follow-up that is just, again, anything Alvarez. I think she won a Russ Manning Promising Newcomer Award, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, I mean, more than Promising Newcomer, this is just fully, fully blown, amazing, beautiful art. 
Um, and speaking of art, I really liked, I really liked the art of um, Gustavo Duarte on the new um, Dear Justice League book. That was a DC Zoom um, <laughs> dearly departed imprint of DC um, for kids. Or is that, is it still DC Zoom? Is that still the kids imprint? Or was, was that what part of the thing that got um, eliminated <laughs> with AT&T Time Warner's um, dissolution of, of DC's imprints? Anyway, I don't know. But this Dear Justice League book, which is a lot of fun, just has this beautiful art by um, I'm not sure. I think Duarte may be a Spanish artist. I'm, I'm not certain about that. Anyway, just gorgeous art. So fun to check out. Um, things I also have been reading and into. Um, one is had a chance to interview um, for the website, for the website, Multiversity Comics, Xingyan Core, about their graphic novel, The American Dream, A Journey on Route 66, which um, is a really fun and fascinating book from Learner books zest imprint you should check it out it is a story of a journey that they took a couple years ago three years ago along route 66 to really kind of explore the americana that's there um if you don't know Xingyin core is a malaysian born um you know artist based out of la who does sculpture and installation art um and grew up with this very um you know the these two pictures of america one that was very much in the LA that they live in and the other that is the you know Hollywood um you know embossed <laughs> route 66 experience which uh which uh Shingen Core explores in so anyway great comic uh check out the interview that I uh, I got to do with them and then um I also uh just uh, wrote and should be posting today a review of another that will no doubt make my list of favorites for the year um a book called In Waves by A.J. Dungo from No Brow. And it is a comic that intersplices two stories, one of um, a sort of evolution in history of surfing, um, primarily f- you know, from its sort of um, uh, uh, pre-colonialist um, roots in Polynesian cultures through um, the the uh, sort of the advancement of surfing through two of its historical heroes. Um, but the other storyline that's um, threaded, braided with it is that of Dungo's relationship with um, his girlfriend, Kristen, who um, he, who, you know, the world lost to cancer. Um, Dungo, fairly young, and, um, you know, it's only a sort of a decades-long relationship that begins with them as teens and ends with them, uh, I guess, in their 20s when Kristen... Um, passes away um and i was just gutted reading the book um totally beautiful um very um, potent design sensibility in the art and uh really moving uh book so check out those two pieces that are at multiversitycomics.com and um yeah i think that's the long and the short of what's coming up um comic syllabus may also involve some other segments uh, in its iterations to come you know if y'all are subscribers you know me it's always jumping around trying to do this thing and that ultimately though committed to continuing to read widely and digging deep in comics and exploring what it means for culture and society and so glad that you're here with us and glad to be back um hit us up again um there's a facebook page there's comments on the the posts at multiversitycomics.com you can find me on twitter or instagram at twoplai and let's keep reading <laughs>